Good morning, everyone. Good evening. Good afternoon. If you're just joining us, I'm your host, Charlie Shrem, and you're listening to another epic episode of The Charlie Shrem Show, where together, once or twice a week, we get to dive deep with some of Bitcoin and crypto's most influential leaders, infrastructure builders, those who are doing the hard work out there right now, building out the next level so we get to that watershed moment where all of a sudden we realize that the way we're doing something now is hyper different than the way that we've been doing things before. And we're on this great series talking about decentralized identity, how our data and our identity is everything that we have going back our whole lives and how we need to protect that and going forward at the same time figure out how we build real world applications on top of that. Today I'm really excited we're joined by two awesome guests. Ingo Rube is joining us from the Kilt Protocol. Thank you, the founder of Kilt. Thank you so much for coming today. Thanks for inviting me again. Of course. And and Harry Evans, you're the CTO of Amplica Labs, a really cool company that's building out all the the pipes and the plumbing for the decentralized social media world. Where are you joining us from? Uh, Hi, thanks for having me. I'm uh, I'm in Los Angeles. I'm heading there tomorrow, actually. You know, Ingo and I have been talking about this subject on decentralized identity, and we kind of went into the history and and talked on on the background of the subject and why it's important in, in the world behind it. I think for our listeners' sake, we'd like to understand some real-world applications that decentralize identity where we'll be using it first. And so we feel like, especially lately, there's been a huge knock-on social media world between different companies chomping at the bit of Twitter and Facebook. You see Mastodon, you see Noster, we see so many of these different type of projects that kind of fizzle out and they never really work. Before I get into like why they don't work, I kind of want to know from you why you think decentralized social identity would work. I think that there's there's a couple of like key aspects there. So the first is I think we've seen at least hints that it would work in the past. If we look back to the early 2000s around the creation of both Facebook and Twitter in the early days, they're very different than they were today. When Twitter came out, I don't know if you recall, folks were talking about, look, it's a new type of pipe for the internet. It's this broadcast protocol that's always been missing, right? And to the extent that Twitter operated less like a company and more like a protocol, everybody was very, very excited about it. And at some point, they decided that they couldn't just fund themselves off of VC money forever, and they chose a route that was you know, display advertising, et cetera. And they closed down. But for a long time, there were like a bunch of third-party apps being built on top of Twitter. They had this amazing third-party API. And we saw the types of social utility that could be created by having that kind of context where you could control which apps you were interacting with, but also they could tap into this underlying graph, this underlying data set. Uh, The amount of utility that could be realized was huge. And in the same sort of way, if you look at the early days of Facebook before their pivot to mobile and uh, some of the work that they did there, you saw like the plugin architecture that Facebook had on the wall, right? Like you could plug this app in, whether it was a Zynga app that was uh, you were playing with your friends or it was something like uh, an app about what books you're reading or whatever, and it could leverage your social graph and you could gain utility without having to like recreate your graph over and over again. But in both of these cases, based on business model and technology constraints, the companies pivoted and because they were platform-based instead of being protocol-based, they were sort of unilaterally able to just change how this functions. So you saw this this amazing potential of I could apply social in all these different use cases in shopping, in gaming, in even in like 
finance and other things like that, where you see people trying to do that again today, but I could take my existing graph, tap into it, use it, do all these amazing things. And I really, I really think that that's a hint at where social could go. I think that social has been really sort of like tamped down and constrained, if you will, from an industry perspective into what, what we talk about at Amplica as destination social network. I go to this place. This is the place I go to communicate with my friends. I can't bring my friends along with me when I go to do all the other things in the internet. The rest of the internet is an empty is an empty shopping mall, and there's one cafe I can go to to talk to all of my friends at. And I think that I think that there's there's so much more potential there. There's this this need, this desire, this demand almost for like a a social layer to the internet. And a key critical component to that sort of thing is having a unified understanding of what identity is. Because of course, the basis of social is people and the ability to have a social graph means that you're tying individuals together. So what's the representation of the individual? How are they connected? How can that data be used? Who's in control of that data at different points in time? Relationship mapping too, like mapping relationships from person to person, from business to, to perspective. We've identified the problem and that's when these things become, by the way, that's one of the best definitions of like protocol versus platform. So for people to understand, like, especially <laughs> you have now, and now I, I think we understand better where Kilt Protocol kind of kind of falls into this architecture is that like that social layer that needs to go across all these different places, you want to be able to take that with you. Ingo, is that kind of where you're, where you're thinking too, as, as it relates to a definition of protocol and platform? Yeah, definitely. So, but, uh, so I think what, what Web3 in total does is bringing things from platforms to protocols. That's the, the fundamental idea that, that. Was, that was coined for the Web3. So Web3 is identity, decentralized identity. It is social graph, decentralized social graph. It is ownership. Of course, decentralized ownership. NFTs, that's the NFT part, uh, the, the ownership part. It is payment, uh, more Bitcoin, right? Rather than banks, right? This, yeah. this is also decentralized. So we're taking all the things where we had the, uh, where we had the uh, platforms before and moving them into decentralized protocols. That's the idea of the Web3. And if we put everything together, then we have the perfect world of the Web3. And this is why we started to work with Amplica pretty early on. I think we're working for, together for a year now or something. They are building the decentralized social graph. So how the people actually hang together, where the, the connections between the people are or, and the businesses. And what we do, we give every single one of them a decentralized identity. And this together actually is the power of Web3. We have to cooperate. We cannot do this one by one. We have to use our protocols and vice versa, right? So we using the DSMP, which is the protocol where Amplica is based on, which is uh, theirs, and they're using Kilt protocol so that together we actually build something great. This is actually very, very important because when you look back at Facebook, why is Facebook so damn big and so damn yeah, dangerous, basically? Uh, it is because they not only have a social graph, they have the social graph and the identity. They are identity providers. If you log into a new service on the internet today, you can push a button which basically says log in with Facebook. So you're using your Facebook identity to access a new thing, and this supplies new data to the social graph in Facebook. So they are growing with every user. And if you just take one piece, just like the so only the social graph out of it, or only one, only the identity out of it, then still you cannot draw that big, right? 
Ingo, like, so I have a Facebook account since 2009, let's just say, and I've probably logged into Facebook with that login with Facebook mechanism, maybe a hundred different websites. It's actually scary to think about it. A Facebook like supervisor, and maybe Harry, you have this answer too. Like what type of dashboard are they looking at when they pull up Charlie Shrem? Like what data and relationship mapping does this, do these people have? Like what is Facebook? And this is not just me. This is all of us. They, it's like a God mode in a way, right? They have all this. How will that be different than what we're talking about here in a decentralized world? First of all, it is even worse than what you just said. It's not only that they can look at your data and sell your data, but they can also switch your data off. So if you are connected to 100 services and this 100 services actually rely on your Facebook identity, then someone at Facebook could have the feeling that Charlie Schramm is not a good Facebook user at one point and switch it off. And then you lose access to 100 services, which gives them an enormous power. And this, this is, I think, even more dangerous than, than spying on your data and, and tracking you. So how would it look in a decentralized world? Well, the identity provider would be a decentralized network, which cannot be switched off by anyone because it's not owned by anyone. It is just a blockchain, right? It's, it's like the Kill blockchain is like the Ethereum blockchain or the Bitcoin blockchain. You're not really scared that somebody can switch off uh, the Bitcoin blockchain and your wealth is gone, right? This is not going to happen. So you put it on the same platform, on the same type of platform, basically, like the Bitcoin and the Ethereum. So it's it's not managed by persons. It's it's managed by by a blockchain. So you are safe that no one can switch you off. This is, I think, a fundamental right that people should have in the internet. If they have an identity, it should not be possible to switch it off. Because in the real world, it's the same thing. Your identity starts with your identifier, your face, your fingerprint, your, your signature. These things cannot be switched off by anyone because they are just yours. Yours. They are tied to your body and not the property of someone else sitting in some room and having access. Right. That's the biggest fear. It's like centralized control over that data. Absolutely. That's that's one of the biggest exciting things in the in the times that we live. Right. Like blockchain brings a new sort of primitive to uh, this this thing. It's a new technological primitive that we haven't had before. Like, if you think about it, like in the past, where can you put data, whether it's identity data or social data, that it ends up not being exploited, right? Like any particular platform that hosts a large portion of this ends up with this idea of like, hey, we don't, we, you know, your data is your data. We're not going to do anything about it. Oh, well, you know, given that we have so many people to do this, maybe we do some aggregate reporting on it, right? Just, just, just informational for the industry. Maybe, maybe we, we, maybe we do provide like anonymized individual data sets. Maybe we do. There's this slippery slope yeah. down almost anywhere that you put this kind of data, identity data, social data. It's very valuable as a, as a, as a Facebook or a Twitter can, can attest to. It's extremely valuable. And the, the desire to exploit it is always only a terms of service, a change away, no matter where you put your particular data. So the ability to trust that where you put it today is also where it will be safe in the future is, is a fundamental struggle with this, this sort of data. And you see it happen just over and over and over again where, when people deal with this kind of data historically. But the interesting thing about blockchain, and not all blockchain, decentralized blockchain specifically, like a hyperledger doesn't provide these same kind of like guarantees, but a decentralized blockchain creates a new primitive for dealing with this kind of data set that's rules-based. Modifying how the chain itself works is not something an individual company no can do right like it's you can't you can't modify 
an Ethereum smart contract, no matter how much you might want to, to decide to exploit data tomorrow based on the fact that you said today that you weren't going to do it. So the rules-based approach, now that's, it's really hard to do and we're still very early, I think, as an industry overall in this, right? There's the, there's the question of bugs, there's the questions of upgrades, all of those sorts of things. But this idea that this fundamental primitive exists that is different, that you can imbue a different form of trust into, is yeah. extremely exciting. And I feel like it's the only way you can really provide actual individual control or ownership of data sets. Because otherwise, you're always just waiting for the platform or the terms of service to, to change their mind. And, and the, the, the power imbalance there means that you don't, you don't have the ability to control that. Europe has been better with privacy and not being able to like change the terms of service. There's a, like a lot of rules that protect it, but it's still not enough. I feel like it's never it's never going to be enough. What's interesting to me is that I'm, I get confused. I think of like the birth of the social media world around the same time as when Satoshi released the white paper. So let's go back to like 2008. Facebook finally was reading its watershed moment. People were it got released. I opened up my Twitter account in 2009, like Facebook and Twitter were like the births of the social media world. But we were living in like this Occupy Wall Street age. You remember like the Great Recession, the world, Greece, Argentina, hyperinflation, like things were getting really bad all over the world. But and trust was eroding, right? Trust was eroding. But then all of a sudden we started trusting these like corporations instead of our governments. And all these social media companies opened up and we started giving them our data and information and I asked someone the other day, I said, why did we do that? Like, why were we so willing and free and able to just like, they have everything of us, like our lives are controlled by this. And the answer was simply, my friend said, he's like, because we were all making money. Because the, we were all making money from this big tech. We were all making money from all of these companies, Facebook, Twitter, we were all making money and, and during crazy and printing money. And, and, and we went through like crazy bull markets and it makes sense. So do you think, and this is where it leads to my question for both of you guys, this changeover where we're going to be all have using Kilt for our simple sign-on and we're going to be using your social graph for our relationship mapping, there's going to be decentralized networks. It's all going to be collected where my mortgage information and my social credit, it'll all be decentralized, but all connected through protocols. Do you think that moment will need to happen due to some like black swan move moment where we all give up trust in corporations? Or will this be like a slow, like where Bitcoin and crypto had like a slow growth where people slowly came over? Will people have to lose trust? Will trust need to be eroded in Facebook for everyone to jump over? Or will it be like a slow friction, frictionless changeover? I would say the trust of Facebook is extremely low. So if you, if you make a, a poll and ask the people if they trust Facebook or if they trust Twitter, you get like 80% uh, of the people actually don't trust it. And of course, they want something else. Okay, but how big is the pain actually? Because they still use Facebook, right? They could move over to other things which are much more complicated. They could use PGP when sending emails. They don't do that. So I think it's a question of convenience. And the task that Harry and I have is basically to make things so convenient that it is not a difference uh, between the Web 2 and the Web 3 world. So moving to Web 3 means the data autonomy for the people, but 
the growth of the Web3, was, which we anticipate, I think is going to be a very long road. And it's not going to kill the Web2. Because when you look at the Web2, it's great, but still there's the Web1, right? You have news yep. sites. News sites are not Web2, they're Web1 because you can't interact, you're just reading. So this, this read web is still existing. The read and write web will not be gone just because there is a Web3 now. I think that it will be a gradual process and it will take quite a while. But at one point, you will notice that with, for example, your kill credential, you can log into 30 different applications without having to use Facebook login and without remembering new passwords. And you can collect your credentials and use this credential for that service and this credential for that and for this service. So it will become more convenient over time because it's growing and we see that it's growing, which is good. And the same is true for Harry, what they do, because they are integrating more and more social networks there. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with England completely. I think that the, the, the reason that they got where they got was a combination of humans have an innate desire to connect and the ability to do so online at a scale that we've seen from you know social networking over time has never been seen before. And I think that the two key components there were that utility and then the convenience of it, right? Like Web 2, a lot of the early Web 2 paradigms, calling something Web 2 in a lot of ways, even before we really understood that interaction aspect, was about new UIs and like things that were a lot simpler than just web one forms for interacting, right? Like they had dynamic web pages and mobile apps because you had the iPhone and, you know, smartphones coming out in that same time frame. So there, there is a big convenience aspect. So a big thing that we work on in Amplica Labs with the work that we're doing with the, the frequency blockchain or integration with the Kilt blockchain and others is how can you minimize that friction? How can you make it something that's familiar to the user while still adhering to these new principles. And that's really challenging. I mean, I don't know if you've uh, interacted much in Web3, Charlie, but it's not necessarily always the the most convenient user experience, right? Some might even say some of those experiences are user hostile. And a big aspect of what we've worked on is what are ways that you can lower that bar? What are ways that you can enforce the same sort of core principles without necessarily having to make the user do this enormous lift on their own to do it. Because a a crypto enthusiast, someone that is very interested in the space will go that extra mile. But like if you're trying to really embrace the larger uh, Web2 style user base, the the folks aren't going to meet you halfway. You have to to go where they are. Go to them, have no friction. But friction is freedom too. But do we want that world where it's like, here, do this because this is how it's done? This is the way the internet works. Like what's good about crypto now is that because there is effort required, because you do have to understand blockchains and you do have to understand how wallets work and you do have an understanding of like when you're when you're using the you know the, the kilt plugin and you're doing simple sign-on, you have there's an understanding of like what am I doing and how this does this work. It's like Someone once said, you don't need to know how to, to how a plane works to fly in a plane. I'm like, yeah, but you need to know how a plane works to fly a plane. You don't need to fly in it. So there's two, two types of users in this, like pilots and everyone else, or will it just be everyone else? We want it to be everyone else. You want it to be everyone. So what I'm here and what the listeners, what we try to do on this show is we try to figure out like how close we are to getting there. And what makes me excited there's so many products and services that you guys want to build that can't be built on Web2 today because we simply don't trust those guys. We don't trust those companies anymore because we lose trust. But how cool would it be? And I'll go back to this example for me to 
give my my bank access to my Facebook history since 2009 to decide if I'm a good mortgage borrower. They would love that. There's no coordination, that data with Web2. So using your integration and kill that world is so close. Yeah. Well, I think I think a big aspect of this is from a from a user standpoint is, you know, I didn't understand everything about crypto and blockchain that I understand today in a single day. Right. Like there was a journey that I went on and, you know, I come from a software development background. So the, the way that I interact with this ecosystem was on a more technical level where my interests were was at a more technical level. But I think every user at some point in order to become sort of a Web3 user and have that understanding has to go on sort of this journey. And one yeah. of the things that we talk about a lot at Amplica is we really embrace the, the concept of Web 2.5, not from a dumbing down blockchain and crypto and the principles involved there, but as the stepping stone to Web3 for the average user, bringing them along on this journey. What are the steps that allow people to engage in these kind of core concepts and principles? How can they learn? How can they explore? How can they find where the value is for them in this new in this new space? And I think that I think that recognizing that there's a journey there, that it isn't a snap of the fingers. Not not that anybody's saying it is, but like when you think about it, like the journey that the average user has to go on to understand the space, understand the differences, right? They've spent many years learning what Web2 is and what the guarantees are, or in some yes. cases aren't. And the anger didn't come day one. People were excited about. Facebook and Twitter in the mid-aughts, right? They but remember, yeah. As they learn more and understand more, the tone changes, right? And in the same sort of way, I think to be able to embrace this new ecosystem and these new ways of doing things is a journey that you have to bring the users along with, right? Like there's an education component, there's an awareness component, there's just at the core an understanding component. And we can't assume that everybody's gonna at you know some point yeah. in you know, mid-2023, as an example, all have this epiphany and that that understanding. So our goal is meet users where they are and bring them bring them along on this journey with us. Like principles-led, self-sovereign based, but like that that's really what we see as the, the core aspect here is building that awareness, that involvement, and that sort of understanding. What's great about Web3 here too, when you do that and you bring a user into Web3, that's also Ingo's user and that's also someone else's user. So Ingo, are you finding that doing partnerships and integrations are easier in, in this industry now? Because I know you also came from like a software development and, and Web 2 background too. Like, But now it's probably easier because when people understand Web 3, they understand that one user can be someone else's user. You guys don't need to keep information siloed and data siloed where it's like you have to fight for the for the same users. In the Web3 world, we actually we find a lot of like-minded people because we all go towards this idea of, hey, the platforms may not have been the best idea. Let's try to find solutions which are uh, feasible, which are decentralized and which are convenient enough so that people can jump on them. Then I think one of the one of aspects, obviously, is that we uh, can use our users together, which is, uh, which is good for growth. I think when the real growth of Web3 starts, it will be exponential because of what you just said. And like we all growing the users together. Some users come over yeah. through the frequency blockchain, some uh, through the kill blockchain, and there will be others which we connect. The growth factor when it starts is going to be fantastic. 
Do you think that it matters being in a world where we have multiple blockchains and multiple protocols or like this in the future, the Web3 user won't care or know the difference between one blockchain or another? It'll just be like one user. But they shouldn't. Uh, so it would be horrible if we have those differences because people are not interested in the underlying infrastructure. So when, when what we have to understand as blockchain builders is we just make infrastructure. We're not making products for the end user. We're making infrastructure like the internet, like HTTP. No one really cares if there's HTTP or HTTPS or whatnot uh, behind. They want to see your website. This is the important thing, that the website is delivered and that the identity is there. And if, it's, if this is today open ID or whatnot, they don't know that, they, that those protocols are below that. And they don't want to know. We have to be absolutely agnostic for blockchains and for ecosystems as well. It's not, uh, it's, it's not going to be like, oh, this ecosystem wins and the other ecosystem loses. What we have to find is ways that we can interact between those state machines, which are blockchains, without centralized components in it, which is a huge issue we still have in the blockchain world, that we do have bridges. Bridges are centralized, bridges get hacked, bridges yep. are not the best idea. There's many projects or many very intelligent thinkers currently working on solutions for that. Now, Harry and I don't have the problem because we are in the same ecosystem and this, the communication there is pretty easy and it's, the ecosystem is built for communication. So we don't have the big challenge, but there's other ecosystems out there which we have to connect. And we see that very intelligent people start working on these challenges. And for the end user, if the Web3 is going to be successful, there's no difference between Ethereum, Polkadot, Kilt, whatnot. I love that. Yeah, that's that's really great. And it's not just about like people in the industry. Like I remember we used to say like banks shouldn't be afraid of Bitcoin. They should work with Bitcoin. And those few financial institutions that work with Bitcoin are really smart. Do you see big tech working on their own Web3 projects? Are you jaded by that? Are you saying, what are those guys doing? How could they be building their, you know, a business model that would defeat them? Well, if I can answer that, so we don't see it. So we saw with Facebook, we saw those ideas tried, yeah. and they didn't really succeed. I don't see anything coming from Twitter. Maybe you have, you have something. I know that uh, but Microsoft is uh, very engaged in the DID and uh, um, yeah, DC world, uh, which is good. Uh, it's not bad. Uh, it's not uh, killing anyone. It's, uh, we, we know that we need to work together with those guys because uh, we, as a small blockchain project, we cannot actually fight people like Facebook who are identity providers without the help of the big ones. And if we sit together and standardize how digital identity looks together, which actually happened from 2017 to 2023, the standardization process for DIDs and verifiable credentials together with companies like IBM and Microsoft, this is actually a very good sign that we have those guys in because it's going to make the growth much easier because if you can also use them in Microsoft applications, of course, that's much better than if you couldn't. That's a good point because that was kind of like my last question is like how people are so ingrained in how they do things, how you bring them over. But I think those few big tech companies that get the message will help usher in people too. Yeah, I mean, we, we saw, like, I think that in the web, in the web two world, you had uh, some set of, 
existing technology players kind of come forward into that space. And then you also had new players sort of arise. And I think that Web3 will be, you know, something similar. There'll be some existing big tech companies that come forward and sort of get it and are able to you know, sort of understand the new paradigm and work in it and embrace it. And I think that you have a, a set of new companies that will arise that will fill, fill the gaps in the areas for folks who don't come forward. I think that over time, the growth of companies is a sign of the, the success of the space. I don't know that they necessarily have to rise to necessarily the same heights that we've seen in the Web2 world. I think that there's a lot of, based on control of data and other sort of centralization aspects, things that have made a very, very small number of players get very, very large and sort of yeah. dominate the space. I think one of the hopes is that you can have successful at both a user level and a business level uh, participants in the space without necessarily having to achieve the sort of Facebook or Microsoft level of success from, you know, like sort of the the centralization forces there. I think that in a more decentralized world, you can have a larger ecosystem of somewhat smaller players here that can all be successful. Money and data centralized, that's just the way it works. Every industry has its behemoth. It's got its biggest players. It's interesting that as a player gets really big, our community has its own wildfires. When a mining pool gets 51%, the community brings it back. When a crypto company gets too big, we either scale back or fall apart. Finance is trying to not fall apart. They're laying off people to scale themselves back. This industry is like the anti-leader. Remember when Elon Musk tried to become like the Bitcoin hero or Jack Dorsey, the community resented that. It was like, so it would be great if we're an industry without big behemoths in the future. You guys give me a lot of excitement for that. So Ingo Rube, Harry Evans, thank you guys so much for coming on the show today. I really appreciate it. Thank, thank you. you.